We're in the Me Too generation, so I have to be very gentle. You wouldn't have your job if you weren't beautiful. It's very sad. I wouldn't choose to be alone with him. This is a journey. Love tweeted Saturday saying, although I wasn't one of his victims, I was eternally banned by CAA for speaking out against Harvey Weinstein. New dimension, new value. For years, men have been getting a whole pizza delivered to them every day, and now women just want half of the pizza, and men are like... What? Why the fuck am I getting half a pizza all of a sudden? There seems to be, seems to be vital signs of people rushing to take offence to catcalling and wolf whistling. Now, the only people who are taking offence to this are extreme feminists. It's a genius thing that the patriarchy have done. They have made gender-based violence a thing that women deal with. And it's not their problem, it's men's problem. Please, uh, would you mind saying that again? One day I saw a guy, he was trying to take a picture of my skirt. I was getting out of the car with bags and a dog. I didn't actually realise until the picture was in the paper and someone printed this shit. This sort of behaviour, we have to adopt a zero tolerance policy. I think the world's gone mad. Somebody brushed your knee 15 years ago. This is complete nonsense. Now, it's not doing the reputation of Parliament any good. And I can't believe that women are being so wimpish these days. Oh, my God. Feminism is not about females being powerful, it's about redressing a balance and it's about equality. And feminism is a very necessary thing for young men to have. And if you want to know, if you think you're a feminist, let a woman pay for your dinner and see how you feel about that. If you're cool with that, you're a feminist. If you're not, you need to look at yourself. Hello and welcome to another episode of Men Behaving Better with me, Jarlath Regan. Thank you all for all your messages over the last while relating to season two. You can access season one and all of the bonus content that comes with it via our Patreon premium page for the ultrasound supporters of this show. Patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of bonus interviews, bonus content, spin-off series, including our True crime podcast, Irishman Behind Bars, a basketball series, Irishman Inside Basketball, of course, the flagship series, Irishman Abroad. But this is Men Behaving Better and Kate Thornton is our guest today. And Kate is someone who I came into contact with through a friend of the show, Laura Whitmore, when I appeared on her BBC Five Live show. And what an amazing lady she is. You may remember her from such TV shows as Pop Idol and Loose Women, but she is a dynamo. And someone who has been working in the industry since she was a teenager. We get into a little bit of her early life here and we talk about that period that she is known for as being the youngest ever editor of Smash Hits magazine. But we also talk a lot about raising a boy as a single parent, her fear of bullying and the horrendous experience that she had of that in school herself. And of course, we get into toxic masculinity in the music industry. As I say, to hear more of this, it's very easy. Come over to Patreon, subscribe there for the price of a pint every month. You will get access to absolutely everything we've produced, including all those live episodes from season one with the likes of Cindy V, Sarah Pascoe, Deborah Francis White, Fern Brady, Brett Goldstein. It's been my pleasure to produce this series and we are arriving at the end of season two. I'll tell you a little bit more about what's coming in the final episode. But for now, please enjoy the Kate Thornton episode of Men Behaving Better. 
Kate Thornton, it's fantastic to have you on Men Behaving Better. Your life and your career is really defined and known for its, I guess, its dynamism, its multifaceted really? of nature of it. The, uh, really? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, uh, being the editor of Smash Hits magazine just into your 20s kind of set the bar and the tone for you in terms of uh, high achieving in a field that is ridiculously hard to get into and then moving through mediums from uh, TV, uh, going from print to TV to uh, now the Internet and kind of online production. Yeah. Uh, within all that, though, you've been a mother raising a young boy. And I, I guess my first question to you is with all of that work, has the challenge of trying to raise the young man you'd like this boy to be ever become overwhelming? Do you know what? No, it hasn't. And I was expecting it to be. And I think that's more down to him than it is to me, to be honest. You know, I've tried to raise him with not morals that I think are specific to, to good men. I just morals that are specific to good human beings, really. And I think, you know, I think if you are raised in a single parent family by a mum, you just become far more, I don't know, of a feminist, mm. I guess, because you see, you know, he sees me doing, doing well, pretty much everything for him because I'm his primary caregiver. Not that, not that his dad's not a big part of his life because he is, but day to day, it's me. And, and I guess I haven't tried to raise him thinking I've got to make him a good man. I've just, I've just raised him thinking I've got to make him a good person or help him to become a good person. And that's kind of what he is at the moment. I'm entering, you know, in three weeks' time, he'll have a birthday in lockdown and he'll be 12 and then the teenagers will come. So, you know, call me back in three years, see how I'm getting on. <laughs> but at the moment, it's been, it's, been, um, it's been the greatest thing I've ever done, ever done. It's been all of my finest hours have been with him. Well, uh, and not in terms of what I've done, but in terms of what he's given me, really. Well, our last two Child. guests, uh, Ramesh Ranganathan and Baza Shwami, both were similar to Ben in that they were raised by their moms. And they both spoke about, you know, the impact that that has. And like you say, that I don't think their That's mothers... It. I'd love to know, actually. I'd love to know because I was raised by, you know, a, a mum and a dad who were still very much together and in love. And so I do, I'm always curious to find out, for, specifically for men, you know, how was it being raised by a single mum? What, what differences did they raise and register with you? Yeah, well, both both kind of echo what you're saying in that their mum wasn't sitting them down going explicitly, well, you're being raised by a woman without a male role model in the house. So I'm going to have to fulfill those things. But both said that they grew up with this deeper appreciation for women as a result of understanding oh, nice how overwhelming and how much there was involved. Maybe not overwhelming. These women and yourself included were clearly capable of doing it. But I guess... It, oh, listen, don't get me wrong. I think parenting, whether you're doing it on your own or with a village, is, is overwhelming sometimes. It has its moments, trust me. It really does. Well, I know that, you know, in our house, the the struggle is real in that you're kind of I guess because we've only got one and you only have one the pressure that you place on this one child can be a little bit too much uh, in that 
I think that Mikey, my son, would get away with a lot more if there was another kid knocking things over. Possibly. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Tell me a little bit about when you do see the toxic masculinity or the slight uh, misogyny that I feel is nearly ingrained or at least little boys are prone to splitting teams along gender lines and associating certain things with girls and certain things with boys. What do you do in that situation when you've seen it? I mean, the first time it became apparent, I guess, is when he was tiny and uh, without me kind of steering him in any direction, he automatically gravitated towards dressing up as Spider-Man or Mm. being Buzz Lightyear. But equally, there were days when I would come up from nursery and he'd be stood there in a, you know, a pretty costume without me sharing with you so I, I guess you you notice even in their most formative years that they gravitate towards things that are going to help them to burn the energy that I, I see that you know Ben could never sit down and colour quietly mm. but he will quite happily stand in the garden even now on his own with a football for a couple of hours and amuse himself no problem mm. in as much as me too he's been playing football and I am the mum on the sidelines you know um, I take him to football practice every Monday. Uh, he does Friday night training. We're always at a match on Sundays. So I'm led by what makes his kind of, you know, his what what lights his fire. And for for him, it's football. I'm useless with football, but I've become better at it. So I I'm, I, I tend to be led by him rather than trying to yeah um, so, to push him in certain directions. But I, well, I hope I have anyway. But but certainly you would have worries within it. I mean, you do always come across as someone who tries not to worry. But I mean, we all have things from our own childhoods that we wish we could change or that you look back and go, oh, so somebody probably could have given me a steer there. What are the things that I know my ones like? I definitely know the ones that I'm concerned for on the part of my son. But what are the ones that I guess you're maybe overly protective of in terms of steering him away from not experiencing what you did um most certainly bullying you know that like the the thought of him being picked on and having the experiences that i had at school um i wouldn't i wouldn't want that for anybody but certainly not for my son so i guess i'm really mindful of that and he's coming into an age now where i started to struggle enormously with my self-esteem and my sense of body image and it's more prevalent now with children than it certainly was in my day and I was I, I was pulled under by it I, it was a question of be, me being slightly larger than the rest of the girls at school and being targeted by you know the kind of the toffees at school and being picked on to the point that I was you know I had, I had a pretty tough time of it, um, at school being beaten up and I really I'm in, in my weird warped thinking the conclusion i reached was they're doing this to me and by as when i said doing this to me like i was beaten up every wednesday at the, at the bus stop on my way to sports every wednesday i knew it was coming and it was horrific and it went on for ages and i thought they're doing this because i'm large and if i if i become thinner and smaller they won't see me and it and also i can, it's something i can control i can't control what they do to me but mm. i can do what i control to myself and and i ended up Having years, I mean, lost years, um, and one of you know, one of my greatest regrets is, is what then followed, which was a, a really difficult time with with eating disorders and 
by the time I left school, I was on top of it, but only because I have the most incredible parents and I had great friends at that time who kind of refused to ignore it. And, and at a time when nobody talked about eating disorders, nobody had counselling and none of the amazing support um, that we have around our mental health and our children have access to now, I had that help and it saved my life. It really did. So if I could save him that, I would probably put my life on the line to prevent him that heartache. Yeah, I watched the documentary and if anybody hasn't seen it, it is available now to stream on uh, YouTube. The documentary yeah, that I'm you really, made about it is I'm really pleased piece. they've kept it up, actually. It's, it's, it's quite a few years old now. And um, it's a documentary I made called My Secret Past. And I, I'd spent years and years being asked to make this this style of film. And I'd always said no. And then I think I started to understand and realise that at the time I was, I'd, I, when my son went to school, when he was four, I went back to school and I studied as a counsellor. And I realised the power of a shared story and that's why I agreed to do it. Mm. And I was right in the middle of my counselling studies, which also meant that when you study to become a counsellor, you are in therapy every week for as long as you're studying. Yeah. Uh, so I was learning loads about myself and of that experience and I wanted to share it and I'm really glad that I did. It was hard. It was, you know, I sat down at the beginning of, of, of that film and said to the producers, I know what you, you want. You want tears and this kind of voyage of self-discovery. And I'm not going to do that because I know this story. I'm really, you know, I'm in therapy. I'm trained to become a counsellor. Um, so I'm just warning you now, you know, you don't need to bring tissues to any of the shoots because there'll be none of that. And of course, there was all of that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that taught me a lesson because you never stop learning about yourself. But I just wanted to say on that point, actually, the fact that that film is still up is really important to me because it means that people have access to it. And it's still it's still a condition that I think is massively discussed, but equally underserved mm. by way of a responsible, informed conversation that's backed up by medics and people that spend their life working in this this area to better understand it. So it's up there. It's on. And even like the other day, I was when we while we were in while we were in lockdown, I was queuing, queuing, and queuing to get into my local butchers. And a guy came up to me, kind of my age, you know, late forties, tapped me on the shoulder and said, um, "I really enjoyed your film." And he'd, he'd looked, he'd found it on YouTube. And I kind of quietly said to him, "Well, thank you, and you know, I hope it helped." He said, "Oh no, I've, I've, I don't have any issues myself with it, but I know everyone knows somebody mm -hmm. that does." And it really helped me to better understand it. And I just thought, well, even that's helpful. That's brilliant. So I'm yeah. glad that I shared what is probably the, the, the most difficult chapter of my life and the one that I would, I would literally walk over hot coals to prevent my son from even having 5% of that experience. And like you say, it's now not uh, exclusively the reserve of girls. That, uh... Oh, my God, no. I think guys get that pressure in, in exactly the same way um in as much as they're expected I mean, my, my son's 11 and he's already just mum do you think i'm gonna have six, you know a six pack mum can you see my triceps I'm like i didn't know what a tricep was at his age mm. and that's that's a reflection of the times in which we live so i think it's it's not about an eating disorder being a female domain it's about it being a human domain and that's and that's something we all need to be mindful of as we're bringing our children through those formative years yeah, the other side of it, as you say, that kind of triggered it for you was the physical abuse of these 
uh, as you say, toughies in the school. And well, it's interesting, you know. You say physical abuse. That beating of you know me being beaten up will probably last fifteen minutes in my week, mm. but the rest of my week would be fail. It would be would be spent with what I can, fear. it would a total fear, like an abject fear. Um, you know, we had to we had to involve the police in the end because they would phone my house and 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 threaten to kill me. And you try going to sleep on a Sunday night when you've just had that phone call, knowing you've got to walk through those school gates the next day. You know, you don't. You you really don't sleep that well at night. Um, so actually, the fifth, the physical was the smallest part of that trauma, I guess. Mm, the, the most painful part was the mental, the me- yeah. the, that, that, that mental abuse, which is, is what bullying is. Well, it has, has come up in the series before now as well that I'm not a hugely physical person. I don't horseplay with my boy. And as a result, I've seen him in situations where he's been pushed over by other kids and he's kind of held his hands up and looked around uh. as if to say, referee, are you not going to call this? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it, it worries me in the in that I think... I'm probably a product of an 80s upbringing in that I knew I'd need to be able to handle myself when and if the fights occur. Does that come into your thinking? And with the absence of the traditional male role model in the case of your son, do you at all worry that he needs to be equipped with this stuff? Because I know that there's so many parents listening to this who do worry. How do I get my kid to be able to physically defend himself should such a situation arise without kind of making physical horseplay and kind of roughness at home part of our kind of family dynamic? Yeah, I, I definitely is something that I thought about. And actually, it's something that he, he used to do karate at school. He doesn't do it now, he's at secondary school. But one of the things that he was taught in karate, because he's, you know, he's going to grow up to be six foot three, he's going to be a big lad. Mm. Um, and I remember talking to his sensei, his karate teacher, about this, <laughs> and saying, like, you know, how, what exactly what you've just asked me, what is that line between horseplay and then it turning slightly the other way? Mm. And, and, and how can he do, how can he protect himself whilst not overpowering somebody that he's arguably going to be twice the size of? And they taught him some really, they took all the kids, uh, through some really interesting techniques. So the moment somebody raises their, their hand to you, you grab them by the wrist. And then you use your free hand to grab the other wrist and you pull it down, pull them down by their sides. And then you talk to them. So you're in control, you're physically controlling them, but not hurting them. And you're able to say to them, you really don't want to do that. You know, neither of us want you to do, you know, neither Mm. of us need this right now. And you teach them how to talk somebody down whilst asserting their own physical strength, but not hurting that other person. Wow. And I, you know, and that might not be for everyone, but that seemed fair to me. No, I love it. I absolutely love it. And I didn't actually know that that would be part of a karate class because your automatic assumption is that it's, you know, swinging, punching, kicking. Uh, well, don't forget, it's self-defense. It is karate. defense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so, and I think, and, you know, it's it was, it gave him the confidence when, someone did speak out to him because you know no doubt him not having a man in the house day in day out has has absolutely influenced the way he responds in situations he's probably far more gentle than Mm. he would if would be if his dad lived with him for example um i'm sure his dad would turn around and say you warn them once you warn them twice and then you whack them back (laughs) um and that's kind of the advice my dad gave me growing up 
And Ben doesn't do that. And that's probably because of the influence of being raised by a woman. I don't know. But he certainly found his middle ground where he feels comfortable that he's that, that, that like a scenario like that, for example, gives him the ability to assert himself mm. and not present as a doormat and a pushover. But at the same time, he's taking a higher ground and a more intelligent approach and just whacking the kid back. You know, uh, Kate, your story and the arc with which you moved into working life has a, a feistiness to it. A fight. <laughs> you there have is, to. <laughs> yeah, there is a fight in it, right? There is a certain element of law, the jungle, kill or be killed to how you uh, achieved your journalism diploma and uh, then set about ringing literally every publication in the country to get a work placement and then subsequently passing the exams or sitting the exams and arriving on the doorstep of the first person that offered to say, yeah. let's go now. I'm ready to work. How much of that? You think it's feisty. It's just survival. You know, it was just a case of if I, I mean, the journalism college that I ended up going to, the London, it was called then the London College of Printing, it's now the London Institute. I'd been turned down from every other course in the country. So I had to get a place on that mm. that course there was you know because all I ever wanted to be was a journalist so it wasn't a case of try your best it was like no you've got to get in you've got to this is it this yeah. is your last chance and then when I got on the course uh, part of the curriculum was you have to find two work placements and I knew for me if I didn't have a job at the end of it I would have to move back home um, and I'm from Cheltenham in Gloucestershire and I'd already worked on the local paper as a kind of, you know, run around, gopher, volunteer, intern, you don't have to pay me type of um, upstart, I suppose. So I, I, I knew that there was, that was all there was in that town for me. I had to stay in London. I had to get a job. So I had to make those work placements lead to a job for me. Otherwise, I just didn't know where, where my next move would be. And I guess that, that fired me on to go in there and be as useful as possible. I mean, right. I literally could not have done more in those two weeks to I mean I might as well have tap danced and you know thrown jazz hands <laughs> in the air I was like I'll do it I'll do it I'll do it probably massively annoying and if I met that girl now I'd probably go oh my god get her out of my space she's too much well here's at my the time, at the here... time it got me then where I needed to be and um and, and nobody got harmed in the in the process so <laughs> yeah. all was good <laughs> well here's my question because you know that fight and that sense of this is it. Make this happen. Get it done. It's hard to cultivate that in your child, especially when your child is an awful lot more than you did. I mean, definitely oh, gotcha. uh, anyone who was just raised in the 80s knows that raising a kid now, just sheer accessibility to information and opportunity is much greater. That's not to say that the competition out there isn't much greater too. There's a lot more youngsters going to the same spots. It's a spots. different world. Yeah, it's a yeah. different world. And, and actually, how do we play, prepare our children for a world that changes at a rate we never had as as, as kids ourselves? You know, mm. they, those are the questions I myself. But actually, it's really interesting in lockdown. So when lockdown came, I, I was thinking, oh my God, here we go, homeschooling. This is going to be a new, fresh, hot hell. And I'm going to have to... Um, you know, I'm going to have to task him and make sure that he's on, on, you know, keeping up with his workload and 
and helped to organize him and actually there's a real big difference between them leaving junior school where you have to do all of that you know have to constantly say have you done your homework mm -hmm. have you packed your bag have you yeah. got your rugby boots you know all that stuff to actually you know within six months of starting secondary school by the time we got to, to homeschooling he was on it really? i've had to do very little he is and i don't know if that's because he lives with somebody like me who's just very organized. I live by lists and I'm, I'm busy, you know, I like, I like to live like that. But I certainly haven't tried to make him a busy person. I want him to be his own person. But he naturally seems to have that in him. So, so far, um, actually, he is a bit of a chip off the old block and he seems quite happy with it. Now, if I'm, if I'm wrong about that, I will be, you know, devastated um <laughs> but you know i've turned him into a busy bee but yeah no maybe maybe it's nature maybe it's nurture maybe i don't know maybe it's a bit of both yeah i'm sure a lot of it kate let's be honest is he sees the graft that you put in that you have put in in that's all he knows in terms of his reference yes. for work but when we go back to your own experience of the working world as i say the work placement is offered at the mirror and the deal is when you finish your exams come back and you show up in your uh what you think london people wear to work <laughs> oh it's so bad it was it was a suit like a power suit that i've ordered from mom's freeman's catalogue and i look, look like i look like melanie griffiths in working girl and i turned up and they were like, you can wear jeans uh, you know when you said i was working at the mirror i worked on the sunday supplement you know right. the kind of the, the magazine outlet. So it was a bit more chill than the newsroom two floors above us so yeah i was you know i mean i'm sure there was a lot of people just kind of quite looking at me on that first day going god love her <laughs> she'll learn <laughs> now when i spoke to you on, the day. <laughs> when i spoke to you on laura whitmore's show you know, I immediately was just like I, I'd always been fascinated by the story of you becoming editor of Smash Hits at such a young age. And, uh, you know, I dug around and tried to find, you know, your retelling of it, which I'm sure you're tired of doing. <laughs> but, you know, it is an extraordinary story because essentially over the course of a weekend, you piece together in your flat your vision for this magazine that you have yeah. loved all your life, essentially. Uh, all my life. All my life. I mean, you know, the idea of becoming the editor of Smash Hits, I hadn't even dared to dream that I could get that job and I could do that job. And when it became available, um, the editor, a really brilliant guy who now edits the Radio Times called Mark Frith, he said to me, I'm you know, leaving. And he said, honestly, they just don't think they've got any internals. And he said, you go for it. And I said, I've never interviewed for a job in my life. And he said, well, just do it for that. Just do it for the interview experience. And, and genuinely, that's what I did it for. I did it for the interview experience. I never in a gazillion years expected to get a gig. I was 20 years old when I applied for it. I'd never edited a I'd be a of a journalism school just over a year i mean who in their right mind job to that person i have no idea <laughs> but, but you 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 don't know any different in some ways it's the uh oh my god the... if i knew what i knew now i would never have gone for it i had no awareness of the fact that it was such a, i mean i knew it was a big job because i loved the magazine but i didn't yeah. know what its standing was in the industry I wasn't aware when I'd applied for the job that somebody as young as me had never edited. I certainly wasn't aware that a woman had never edited it. 
So I wasn't going in there thinking, I'm going to break new ground. I just thought I'm going to apply for a job because I've never done that before. And it's a job that, you know, wow, I'd love to have. But hopefully they'll remember me in three editors time when I've got enough experience under my belt to come back in and, and talk to them again. I was literally just trying to lay a path for a, a, for the future, not thinking seriously, not thinking for a minute that it was going to it was going to come my way. The world that we picture there in that kind of, I guess, loaded magazine was the men's mag of that time. Men behaving badly was the sitcom. You know, the Bedeal and Skinner kind of lads, 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 kind of rose tinted view of drinking lager and watching football. Boobs and girls was just so of the time and so now kind of synonymous with the mid 90s that I Mm. guess in my own head, there is a vision of how hard this was as a woman. Uh, Am I wrong on that? Like, I didn't feel that way to me, to be honest with you. I mean, a lot of people made a fuss about the fact that I was the first woman to edit the magazine. But to be honest, I had a magazine to edit. I didn't really have time to to look up and, and listen to the noise. I just had to get that magazine out. Uh, I'd never done that before. I had to increase circulation. Never done that before. So actually, whilst it might have been a big deal to others, I just didn't have time to even consider that. And and actually, I think it was it was towards my the end of my time at Smash Hits, and I didn't stay huge you know a huge amount of time there. I moved into telly quite quickly. We were away on a kind of editor's away day where we were brainstorming and that was the first time that I looked around the room and thought I'm the only woman here and somebody <laughs> made a joke about put the kettle on I just looked up and said mine's a coffee sugar. <laughs> I don't even go I'm not making your tea and coffee <laughs> Kate, just as these women were really important to uh, your career and that a lot, as you say, a lot of these, uh, that that appointment that you first mentioned was through men, like the Spice Girls and the start of girl power uh, at that period and that window of time kind of became the essence of smash hits in that period. When it first appeared, when the girls first appeared, do you remember that moment that it first came across your bows? And did you think this would be what it went on to become? I hoped it would because nothing else was working at the time. <laughs> um, literally, we were in a in a pop desert our wells had run dry so just to get yeah in, in answer to your question i will never forget the moment those girls launched into my office and i bought into them immediately because they were so undeniable and and you know that not that i was ahead of the curve on that because that you know within weeks they were number one and everybody mm. bought into them there was just something about them it was timing it was the message it was the energy and you cannot deny you know really phenomenally good pop songs yeah. that were, were just in your you know the moment you heard them they stuck i think as well it had come about at a time when when i think young women needed to remember that they they, they didn't need to all look the same and be the same and that they could have opinions and they could extend beyond, you know, whether or not it was, it, it, you know, these girls came along and they told you you could be whatever you were 
and wanted to be. And it was as simple as that. And and I think that was such an exciting and powerful message for young girls. Um, so the, the girls the girls kind of came into my office without an appointment. And the the office was predominantly open plan, although I had an office of my own because I had to have somewhere to have private meetings where we talked about things like budget and mm. you know, headcount and all kind of grown up boring stuff. And I was in a meeting with my publisher and my PA put her her head around the door. I mean, like she was the only person that was the same age as me on the scene. And uh, she said, oh, there's another band in. Because we used to have bands in all the time. We used to, the record companies would bring their bands in and they'd try to kind of dazzle us in the office in a way to win, you know, to win column inches. And we had so many of these that, you know, unless unless it was something really exciting, you just had to say to them, okay, can, can their features editor see them? Can somebody else see them? Because if I came out of a meeting every time somebody came in, I'd never get anything done. <laughs> and what, wait, what would happen when these bands showed up? Like, would they sing a cappella? Would they just try and be huge personalities and be adorable? Depends on which kind of act they were. Um, predominantly, it would be their PRs or their pluggers that would bring them in. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a kind of, you know, it was a great way for them to try and connect with the editorial team. And Smash Hits was so important back then. You know, the world has changed massively. But in order to get in order to get Radio One, you needed to have Smash Hits, you mm. know, Smash predominantly where the industry looked on a pop level to see what was coming next. So we, I guess we were the tastemakers and you went to the enemy to look for the next cool indie band. By the time Spice Girls came into my office, we were in the grip of Oasis, Blur, Pulp, uh, you know, that whole scene. So we'd become kind of redundant, I guess, you know. I mean, I remember putting the blue tones on the cover thinking, let's see if this works. Because I didn't know, you know, I, I joined the magazine to take that split up. They were my cover stars. Yeah, and of course bands like those indie pop bands not to say they didn't want to be on the cover of Smash Hits but it wasn't Enemy. Oh, it was reluctant. It wasn't cute, right? No, it wasn't cool and I mean they played the game but you know, I mean like Blur and Oasis would never do shoots for us, put it that way Hmm. because we weren't their market, I get it. Um, So we were trying to figure out well, you know, who do we put on the cover? Who is working? And when the girls came in I'm locked in this meeting and all I could see was out of the, out of the I had a kind of glass window from sort of mid from the middle of the room up and all I could see was these girls huge shoes on desks and they were dancing on desks and blaring this 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 track out and I was trying to talk to my publisher and I kept looking out of the corner of my eye and he was doing the same and I said I'm going out to have a look at this this is good look they're causing a, you know they're causing havoc <laughs> And as soon as I opened my door, I mean, literally, I had Jerry in my face going, right, we are the Spice Girls and Girl Power and explaining what Girl Power was. And she, and she said, you know, she had, she got me with my back to the wall almost. She said, you are the, you know, you're the first female editor of Smash Hits. You are Girl Power and you've got to do this for us. And I ended up brokering a deal with them before they left the office and said, look, I'm going to put you in the magazine. Uh, we have an introducing section and uh, we're going to tip you for the top. And then she was like, but we want the cover. And I said, you get to number one and I'll put you on the cover. My problem is girls don't particularly sell, you know, predominantly historically, 
girls don't sell magazines to this market. But if you get to number one, I can't deny your success and I will push you all the way. Uh, but until then, I'll shoot a feature with you and I will, we will big you up because we think you're great. But the cover comes when you get to the top of the charts. And, and that's the deal we made. And they went to, I got the midweeks in on a Wednesday and we shot the cover with them in Japan, I think two days later. Hilarious, first of all, that Jerry was negotiating the deal, right? Not just Jerry, I mean, Mel B, I mean, all yeah. of them. But like, and you could yeah. think for but them. I, but I mean, like, surely their well. manager is is normally the person that's there doing uh, that. I mean, were they always know, Simon, that way? Simon Fuller is a very, very clever manager. He's one of the greats. And he knew that they could sell themselves better than anyone. Mm. So why on earth is he going to try and plug it to me? What they did was shock and awe. Um, you know, they came in, they shocked us. We were in awe of them. By the time they'd left the building, I mean, literally, it was like the video for Wannabe, where you, everybody's just kind of like looking around going, what the hell was that? That was <laughs> exciting. Um, so he's, you know, he's, he's a very, very smart manager. And after they'd come in, then he called me. Right. He's a very mild-mannered guy, Simon. One of the smartest men I know. And I had great fortune of going on to work with him on Pop Idol, which was his format. Yeah. Along with Simon Cowell. And I phoned him and was like, okay, we should talk. He said, come and listen to the album. Come to my office and listen to my album. Uh, I listened to the album and, and then we'll make a plan from there. So I went over and I met Simon and he played me the entire album. And it was just hit after hit after hit it was mama two becomes one spice up your life you know it, it just, they, they just they just didn't stop the hits did not stop and at that point simon was managing annie lennox he was looking after kathy dennis who's an amazing songwriter mm. but it's not like and he's not he was he was everything you wouldn't expect a pop manager to be and we worked out a plan together and he was honorable and they became the biggest band in the world but whatever he promised he delivered and uh, he never let me down I always get the sense that when I interview women about the industry and toxic masculinity in it or maybe the me too aspects of it that they experienced that there's still a certain silence around certain things I don't even need to name names you can count on it that the people that I've spoken to that there's certain things that they're still unwilling to talk about because that would involve going down that road it took years years from this point of them bursting in your office being that whirlwind and everyone readjusting their ties after they left for any woman to come forward in the way they have and uncover and reveal and force the change that we've seen my question is, how much of girl power and what they did was fraught and maybe a little more uh, window dressing and how much of it was actually changing the business and the culture surrounding it? Um, they undeniably changed the business because they proved that women could be the biggest pop stars on the planet. And, right. the, and the last time I'd seen that uh, was Madonna. You know, she she came and changed everything. So on a business level, 100%, they changed everything. How they impacted the Me Too movement and encouraging women to have their own voice. I think every woman will have their own 
Some women, they will have passed by. Others, they will have impacted massively. You know, you're talking about a 20-year gap. Yeah. You're talking about, so I think, you know, I think a lot of a lot of women who are talking out now were probably fired up by them as teenagers. And, and I think they, I can't see what negative impact the Spice Girls could have had on, on, on you know, mm. impressionable teenage female minds. I, I think they were all good. They taught you that, you know, you can be who you are and what you are and you should celebrate your individuality. That was very powerful. It sounds so simple now, but it wasn't. Everybody mm. would, I mean, for example, at the time, any girl band that was out there dressed, they all had a uniform. They all looked like each other. They dressed like each other. The Spice Girls didn't do that. That in itself was quite a revelation. It, it was saying, if you're the sporty one, you can be sporty. If you're the glamorous one, you can be, you can be posh and if you're if you're cute you can be baby it doesn't matter and we can all get along and there's something very powerful about that actually it what it did is it broke up tribes mm. and said you know what you can you can be a different kind of tribe you can be aligned not by what you wear and how you look but how you think mm. and that i think i don't think that's to be underestimated yeah, and I guess I, I, I wasn't uh, suggesting that it had a negative impact. I guess my question was uh, relating to why it took so long and whether I guess they were part of it in laying the groundwork for putting a finger in somebody's chest and saying, I don't agree with how you were acting towards me. Certainly that was what I remember of it as a 16 year old uh, yeah. <laughs> living through it from that side of things. But I mean, my own experiences in the business, if I ever came up against anything that felt uncomfortable, I pushed back. Mm. And if I saw somebody else experiencing something that I felt was wrong or uncomfortable, I pushed back. And I wasn't alone in doing that. Sadly, We've since discovered there were lots of women that that didn't feel that they could push back. I was in a different position. I was in a position of some power, I guess. I was, you know, I don't know, running a magazine. Then mm. I was fronting TV shows. So I had a voice and I was never afraid to use it, but I never abused it either. Um, how often did you see it? And how often did those uncomfortable situations arise? Not even a handful in my experience, maybe because I'm a little bit scary, I don't know. But when they did, I dealt with it and and I stood my ground. Mm. So what I has what really like I had to. I had to. Yeah. You know, that was the right thing to do. So what hasn't changed? Because I think you know, the whole purpose of the men behaving better season and podcast that I make here is I guess men looking at themselves a little bit harder than they normally would. And, uh, you know, there's certain things that have changed even since the start of this series and this uh, this run. But I know that there's other things that haven't. Now, we started out by talking about Ben, your son, and Mikey, my son, and, you know, who we want them to grow up to be. What is it from your side of things that you see in the men that you've encountered across your career that you wish to see in your son? Should he find himself in in the workplace the way you are? The men that you encounter that you go, now that's an example to other men who are hoping to move into this industry or this business. Quite simply, the ones that, that don't see gender as an issue. And, and and maybe I'm being overly simplistic, but 
you know, we, we can't have equality if men aren't part of that movement. So we need them to keep pushing forward with us uh, so that there is equality. And I know loads of men, for example, that would like, you know, the same equal rights to work from home or be more present within the family in terms of, you know, their employment status and having the same. And I think that's really important. I think it's really, really important that that we're we're enabled to to fight for patriarchy for both sexes. And I think there's so many. I mean, it's it's interesting that it's in my industry it doesn't feel like the issue that it is in others. Um, you know, I've had a brief experiences of working in different in different lanes, I suppose. And when I uh, was working for a while in finance, for example, oh my God, it was like going back 20 years. <laughs> it really was. It was frightening. It was like time traveling. I felt, I felt like I was Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> and I was just going backwards. So actually, I think I, I, I think I work in a very progressive environment in the media. And it was quite shocking to me in other parts and other in other industries that 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 isn't prevalent. And mm. and then you travel around the world and you go into different cultures, and some of it makes me so angry, so angry. Um, what specifically? Like what what are you referring to when you say that? You know, is it Abu Dhabi where women have only just been given the right to drive? Mm. I mean, that's fucking bullshit. Sorry, it's 2020. Yeah. Um, what? You know, they're not allowed to work. That they, you know, that 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 is that just doesn't make sense to me. 51 percent of the population is female. Why are why are they not treated equally and given the same rights in those cultures? And I get that a huge part of it history and culture and religion, but it's still not it's still not a life I could live. I know that uh, we we've so much more to cover, but I'm keen to you know let you get on and do your thing there. I really do appreciate you taking the time to do this, Kate, and I, I wish you the very best luck in your own lockdown, and hopefully our paths cross soon. I really hope so. You're doing a wonderful thing. You have a an amazing lens on the world, and I and I'm really I'm re- yeah. I find it incredibly hopeful and encouraging that you're making a podcast like this and you're asking these questions. Well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it, Kate. You're one of the good guys. (laughs) There are many, by the way. You know, there are many, many, many. And let's hope that, you know what, one day we're sitting around a table looking at our kids and going, hey, you know what? We did all right with them. (laughs) All right. (laughs) They're fine human beings. Yeah. They make make us proud. And that's that's for me is what we need to focus on is about raising good human beings, regardless of their gender. Just, you know, people with brilliant minds and even more brilliant hearts. And and yes, it sounds a bit misworld to say that, but that is what I hope for. Mm. Well, Kate, thanks a lot, Kate Thornton. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Anytime. Well, what can you say about Kate Thornton? What an absolute lady. Just an enjoyable conversation. I'm so glad we had the time to have it. If you want to get in touch with the show, it's easy. Irishmanabroadpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to prepare for the final episode of the season, that's easy to do. You want to read the book that my guest, my next guest, Matt Pinkett, released entitled Boys Don't Try Rethinking Masculinity in Schools. And basically, Matt Pinkett has 
made it his business to try and re-engineer what we view as masculinity and how we view boys in education. I think it's the perfect place to end this season as it has, as you can see from listening to the previous five episodes, that that's where our discussion has taken us to. How are we going to create new men or better men? And Matt Pinkett has devoted a lot of his life to that. So the book is available on Amazon, wherever you want to get it. But it'll really help you understand the final episode. And we'll we'll walk through his chapters in that book and all of his theories. But for now, massive thanks to Kate Thornton for taking the time to do this conversation. Huge shout out to our charity partner, Jigsaw.ie. Head over there to see the incredible work that they've been doing on youth mental health across communities back home in Ireland. And if you can, kick in a tenor to jigsaw.ie forward slash now. Maybe that's a way of repaying me for the free podcast. You'll be doing something lovely and helping uh, young people back home in Ireland with their mental health and the services that Jigsaw provide. Our producer is, as always, Brian Connolly. Massive thanks to Brian and thanks to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. I'll see you next time for episode six of season two of Men Behaving Better. So I dig into my pocket, all my money spent. So I just deep up, still coming up with lint. So I start my mission, leave my residence, thinking how I could I get some dead presidents. I need money. I used to be a stick-up kid, so I think of all the devious things I did. I used to roll up, roll up, roll up. I used to roll up, roll up.